You're listening to another This Is Your Podcast production. All right, coming at you in three, two. Hey, everybody, Brian Dunstan and Keith Reading here for episode 22 of the Puck and Hoop podcast. All kinds of playoff stuff and some big Raptor news to talk about today, Keith. So uh, with this smorgasbord of news and happenings ahead of us, where do you want to get started today? You know what? I want to get started uh, with your team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. I think it's... Uh, for me, it's not the most relevant, but it is the most timely. And I think that, you know, by the time we do another cast, we'll have more uh, Leafs news and more NHL playoffs news. So I'd like to start with that. Sure, let's do it then. Well, obviously, the Leafs took control of the series with a 4-3 overtime win on Saturday night in Tampa. Morgan Riley with the big shot from the point. Well, it wasn't a big shot. It was a wrist shot that <laughs> got through a crowd. But it was a big shot in the impact. In a game that, you know, everyone talks about in a playoff series, your goalie has to come up big and steal a game where you're the second best team. Well, if you look at your stats, guy, if you look at every single stat, except for a couple of interesting ones, the Leafs came in second place in this game but they managed to steal it based on the play of Ilya Samsonov, particularly through the second, third, and overtime periods. So a big win by Toronto to give them control of the series. Man, Tampa came out like their hair was on fire in that game, but uh, Toronto has a 2-1 lead heading into game four. You know, sometimes when they say um, steal a game, I think it's also when that goalie makes that save. What particular moment and yeah Ilya Samsonov he had some really I think brilliant saves and a couple of ones that really like under uh undervalued and also I think it was lucky I mean Tampa fans might argue that that uh disallowed goal should have been allowed and I mean obviously their third goal too I think you could argue that it you know was it was the play frozen I mean, I don't think the play was frozen on that uh, would-be fourth Tampa goal, but, you know, the whistle did no. blow. The whistle did blow. So, For sure. And that's and the best description I heard of that came from Kevin Bieksa on the broadcast on uh, last night's game. He said, uh, bad whistle, right call. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's exactly it. The puck was free, but if the referee loses sight of the puck, as is stated in the rule book, he has to blow the whistle. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and that in that case, the, the ref who was, I guess, off to the side and kind of behind the net blew the, blew the play dead because he lost sight of the puck. See, that's the problem with the two referee system, man. I, I guess, do you go back and discuss it with the second referee and do you talk about who's got the best angle on it? But the whistle blew. So play is dead. Anything after that doesn't count, and that's when the puck crossed the line. Uh, Tampa has an argument there that it might have had a, a pretty big impact on the game. Sure. But it's just one of many things that had a big impact on the game. I mean, like, let's get into the issue of the, the uh, situation that occurred in uh, the third period, I guess it was, with the taking of um, Braden Point into the boards. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Not taking into the boards, with Morgan Riley. Like, two players going hard for the puck, one's a bit bigger, Braden Point bounces off and goes headfirst into the boards. Not a vicious hit, but the outcome of the hit looked vicious. So, consequently, Tampa reacted 
in the manner you would think when a great player like Braden Point goes down and is obviously hurt. The problem I had with this whole situation, Keith, and this is where I got to call the refs out. How do you allow Tampa Bay to get away with what they did? They initiated, instigated. Oh, yeah, a couple of fights. Not one, but two separate fights. And they come out of that with no penalty for that? Like what Stamkos did, Austin Matthews is minding his own business, picking up sticks so guys don't trip over them. And the referee has an irate Stamkos in hand. The ref does. And with his free hand, he's laying shots to Austin Matthews' face. Yeah. Like that's an instigator, a 10-minute misconduct and five minutes for fighting. Instead, the Leafs end up with a, just a two-minute uh, power play when they should have had probably a five-on-three, as Sheldon Keefe pointed out in his post-game comments. To me, that you, you can credit Tampa Bay for you know taking advantage of a situation and knowing that the referees don't want to have too big an impact, but my God, man, call the play as it's written in front of you. What Tampa Bay did in that scenario was just ridiculous. So you balance that out with the non-goal or or uh, quick whistle on the fourth, potentially fourth Tampa goal. And I think those things kind of tend to balance itself out. But what was totally imbalanced was just how much Tampa was able to dominate the Leafs in their offensive zone and not give the Leafs much of a sniff on the other end until later in the game when, when the desperation made courageous heroes out of uh, Ryan O'Reilly with that last-minute goal. But, I, I mean, you're a stats guy, Keith. I, I mentioned this earlier. If you look at the stats in that game, in a game that heavily favored the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Leafs won, to me, three important stats. Obviously, the most important that is the score sheet, 4-3 yeah. final in overtime. But look at the number of hits in that game, 63-61 to 61 for Toronto. Block shots. The Leafs blocked more shots. If you're going to win anything in a stat game, those are kind of the three. Well, obviously, the score is the one you want to win the most. But the other two, it showed a level of commitment from the Leafs in a game where they were heavily outplayed that belies their previous performance in games of this ilk in the playoffs. Uh, Sheldon Keefe said it again. I referenced his comments earlier in the postgame. But he said, this is the type of game that you've seen us lose in the past on many occasions in the playoffs. Uh, but they did, and here's a sports cliche for you, they did what so many teams have to do in this situation. They bent, but they didn't break. And that, to me, those are the crucial stats in this game. They blocked shots, and they matched Tampa Bay's physicality. Every other stat, except for the score, you can tip heavily in Tampa's favor. But those three things, to me, showed that this Leafs team is hell-bent on, on forging a different outcome than they've had for the past six years in round one of the Stanley Cup playoffs. It's also, Brian, who was leading in those categories. Austin Matthews was third on the Leafs with uh, five hits. He also had a couple of blocked shots. I mean, you know, when a guy like him... And you know what? Credit as well, he, he didn't turtle... He fought Steve Stamkos, um, you know, and good takedown. Yeah, huh? you know, he, he fought Steve Stamkos. <laughs> so, you know, those are the kind of leadership stats I think that you need, and it has to come from your best guy. Uh, did you hear on the broadcast? It's the first time in NHL history that two sixty-goal scorers yep. actually fought yeah. each other. Which I mean, you know, it's not crazy because I mean there there aren't 
you know, it's not like there are hundreds or tens of 60 goal scorers throughout the throughout NHL history. Um, but yeah, but a, but a quirky and fun stat. Yeah. But I th- again, you know, Austin Matthews, he had a goal and even in the goal that he scored, Brian, that was a tough, that was a really tough goal. I mean, he was fighting, uh, I believe he was fighting, uh, was it Radish who was fighting Radish. in front of the, yeah. in front of the net? He like, had a pretty good game himself. Yeah. He, yeah. But he was battling, you know, and then he got that great tip, which we expect from Austin Matthews. But the battle in mm-hmm. front of the net, I, I, I thought that was fantastic. And, you know, as you said, the score well, sheet, he, the score sheet ultimately is, you know, what was telling. Yeah, the score sheet is always the final arbiter in any sporting contest. And thankfully, they, as a Leaf fan, it turned out in their favor. They, they scored in the third period. They scored in overtime. Yeah, well, let's talk about that third period goal by Ryan O'Reilly. They call him the factor for a reason. Guy parks himself right on the lip of the crease, and he's not getting out of there. William Nylander makes a great play to get the puck to the net because it looked like he was going to pass it uh, back to the point, but he goes for the the short side shot, and bang. Ryan O'Reilly's right there, and it's in the net for a game-tying goal with less than a minute to play. Um, Ryan O'Reilly... His presence on the team, he's ne- you watch the, the camera shots of the bench when he's on the bench, never stops talking, always saying something to somebody, and always it looks like an, you can't tell what he's saying, but it looks like it's in a positive bent. The guy is so into every moment of the game. Uh, you really understand why he performs in the big moments because he's just so into the game. I mean, I, I guess every skater is, but you see something in that guy that really is a little bit different. And I guess that's why you become a, a former con, well, not a former, but a con Smythe trophy winner and a Stanley Cup champion. Something the Leafs haven't had on their squad in this iteration of the team with this uh, core group that they've had for the last six, seven years. So Ryan O'Reilly, uh, he's legit, man. And I don't know about you, Keith, but he could be the difference in this series for me because he's dragging the stars to perform like stars with his commitment to being an all-round player. Yeah, well, I mean, he's there to he's there to show these guys what it takes to, you know, get through four rounds of the playoffs, right? And I mean, and and you're yeah. saying he's doing it vocally. He's clearly doing it on the ice. So, I mean, he's doing the job that he was brought in to do uh for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I I just want to turn it uh, turn yeah. it. Okay, so those last two goals. For me, there just seem this it just seems that Andre Veselovsky is not the same Veselovsky that we have seen in in past. That O'Reilly goal went through his arm. Uh, you know, it looked like he had everything closed down. Like, he doesn't look like he's on the top of his game. I'm not taking anything away from the Leafs, but it doesn't seem like mm-hmm. he's at the very top of his game like I've seen in the past. There was a... After... Um, Actually, it was the second goal uh, that was scored by by the Leafs. It was the Matthews goal. They had they sh- they showed a close up of his face on the broadcast, and he was just like you know that uh, you know that you know that uh, famous line from uh, I guess uh, I guess it was in the movie about uh, Ali and Rumble of the Jungle when he looks at himself and says, "I got to get it together, man." That's the look that Veselovsky yeah. had. He really had a look on his face yeah. like, I got to get it together here. And, I mean, it was a great mm-hmm. tip. You know, went over his shoulder. So, I mean, but yeah. you just have you just have a feeling that he's not, I mean, the stats bear out he's not at his sharpest. And, 
you know, you, you look at him on the ice, he doesn't look that he's the sharpest that I've seen in the past. And and that look in his eyes, Brian, really showed me that, you know, this is a guy who's, you know, battling uh, himself a little bit right now. You know, he is the, uh, mm-hmm. he's the shutdown guy. And to come and to remember, to play the game too that he did and then to not come back on home ice and I don't, when I say pitch a shutout, I don't mean get a, sh- uh, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I don't mean, you know, literally get a shutout, but to pitch a shutout performance, I think that he is not the same guy. And more importantly for the, for the Leaf fans, I think the Leafs know it and I think they smell it, Brian. Perhaps, Keith, uh, you might be right about that. But here's here's a few things I'd like to take away from what you just said. Um, good catch on 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 the uh, the look on Vasilevsky's face. He looked vulnerable in that moment, and this is a guy who has an aura of had, I might say, had an aura of invulnerability about him, except for this season, up and down this season. Right? Yep. Take it back to last playoffs. The Leafs, I think, have scored more than three, perhaps more than four, in every single game they've played against Tampa Bay in the playoffs, with the exception of Game 7 last season. So I think it's in the Leafs' head, and quite possibly in Vasilevsky's head, that Toronto can get to him. Toronto has gotten to him. I mean, they've got what? Seven plus three is 14 goals in three games. That's more than four goals a game to the guy who is acknowledged as the best money goalkeeper in hockey right now and has been for at least a half a dozen years, if not longer. So the fact that the Leafs are averaging more than four goals a game in these playoffs through three games, that's got to shake you up. I don't care how confident and how how invincible your, your record is. When you're giving up four-plus a game, that's going to shake you up a little bit. Also... The Leafs have a great offense. We know that. So even though Tampa did a tremendous job of limiting the Leafs' opportunities, they don't need much to get a lot. That's the nature of having an Austin Matthews, a John Tavares, a Ryan O'Reilly, uh, Mitch Marner. And for crying out loud, Morgan, Morgan Riley, which we'll get to in a second more about him as the uh, hero from, from Saturday night's game. But the Leafs have a lot of high-end not even high-end, elite offensive players. So a crack is all they need. And maybe that's what's getting to Mr. Vasilevsky in the Tampa net. Yeah, but you know what? It's interesting that you said that. I I don't know if it's the Leafs, if it's himself. I, I think he's personally battling a crisis of confidence. I, I don't see in, in, I don't know, 40 years of watching NHL hockey, I think every goalkeeper goes through this at some point and I think he's doing it right now in real time against the Leafs uh you know because I, I I looked at it and I think that you know although Tampa Bay had more shots on net than the Leafs did you know I I, I don't think that the Leafs had per se greater chances they had a few good chances but the the thing is is on those few good chances, they got four. They got four goals. Actually, they mentioned it. I think they mentioned it in the. Yeah, they did on the broadcast in the third period. At one point, the Leafs had like I believe they had four shots on net when they scored. You know, and they were like the mm. Leafs are taking advantage 
of the chances they get. And, and that's the thing is it, it, it's great to make saves. It's great to make saves from the point, um, uncontested saves. But as we were saying with Samsonov, you've got to make that big save. And it's when you make the save, right? You know, you, you got to yeah. make that save. Let's, oh, let's be honest. 100%. A minute left in the game and your team has come back twice and now they're, they're in the lead. And, and yeah, forget it. You, you had the, you, you know, the, uh, the uh, goal that was disallowed, you know, you had Braden point coming back from being ridden, ridden into the boards, which I believe by the way, was not a penalty, but just a hockey play. Um, but he, he comes back out there, you know, that's your, you know, your rallying cry moment because there was some speculation whether he was coming back or not. And you as a goaltender, Hey, look, man, you know, it's six on five, you know, there's like, you know, I, I, I think it was like two minutes left or about a minute 57 when they, when they pulled Samson off. Um, this is where you got to come up. You know, I could say anything, but this is really where you got to come up big and take a, like a real stranglehold. The opportunity was there for them to take a stranglehold on the series. And let's flip it. If Tampa is now leading two games to one going into game four on home ice, what pressure do you think the Leafs are going to be feeling? You know, you, you had a, you had a real opportunity like a, being Vasilevsky to make all of that happen. Yeah. I want to get to the game for expectations based on that very statement you make in a second, Keith, but let's, let's uh, deal with some of the uh, other aspects of game three before we move on to thinking about what's going to happen in game four. Um, Morgan Riley, obviously with the OT winner, boy, he's had some great playoffs for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And that seems to be continuing. And especially coming on the heels of a so-so season where he was called out by the fans and the media quite a bit for his desultory play. But he's been rock solid on both ends of the ice for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And getting that play, uh, that OT winner um, kind of was like the icing on the cake for him on, in three games where he's played pretty well and has definitely cemented his status as the number one defenseman for the Maple Leafs. But um, it's not unexpected because, you know, one of the guys that has performed time and time again in the playoffs for the, for the Leafs has been Morgan Riley. So I don't think we should expect anything less in this series. Yeah. And uh, once again, I've consulted the online dictionary, desultory, lack of purpose, <laughs> lack of enthusiasm. Uh, for anybody listening, that's what desultory means. And you know what? I, I would say maybe lack of purpose and lack of enthusiasm uh, did actually, um, especially for the early part of the season, define a bit of what Morgan Riley was about. Uh, he definitely came on in the last third of the season. Um, so maybe he found that purpose. Um, but you know what? It, it, here's the thing. His winning goal, you know, in in overtime, you can never fail by putting the puck on the net, right? And I mean, with what was it about a minute left or less than a minute left in the first yeah, seconds in the yeah. first overtime? Honestly, Brian, I was getting ready to flip the channel, um, and no, no, I was going to come back to it, but I was yeah, like, okay, the, let me watch something else, right? right? Um, I was going to flip yeah. the, yeah, yeah, let me watch something else, you know. So let's see. But yeah, he put that puck on net and, you know, with, you know, a somewhat screened Vasilevsky, you know, mm -hmm. it just went right in. 
And uh, yeah, but that wasn't the only thing that he did. I mean, he played great during the yeah. He played great during the game. Uh, you know, coming back, uh, we're used to hockey players coming back banged up. You know, he comes back bloody nose twice to to go and play. But you know what? I, 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 can I just talk a little bit about uh, a guy that I'm really growing in uh, like admiration for, which is Luke Shen. I didn't think he. I didn't think he had this much left. I don't want to call it an eye opener because the guy's a veteran, been in the league for what 13, 14 years now. But his play has been yeah. rock solid. Everything you want him to do at the best of his abilities, he is doing. He's not trying to make you know too much of what is out there. He's doing what needs to be done out there. He's a physical presence. He's he's actually kind of menacing out there. Did you see that scenario after the brouhaha where he walks between yes. and gets between the benches when all the Tampa Bay guys were just yelling and screaming invectives at the Leaf bench? Shen just uh, you know smoothly skates over and stands there and just sort of looks at them with a half smile on his face, like that's a bit menacing right there. I kind of like that. You gotta like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Like you you're gonna have to come through. Yeah, you're I'm, gonna have I'm to here. come through. I ain't going me, anywhere. Right? I mean. Yeah, that uh, that was incredible. And also, you know, they highlighted a few of the battles mm -hmm. that he was having in front of the mm -hmm. net. Clean, physical, you know, and you know, you know, you've seen. You don't you don't want to fight this guy. He's not going to win every fight, but um, but he's going to be in the fight. He's going to be in the fight. Hey, nicely said. I mean, this guy. We got to remember though. I actually thought, you know, hey, Luke Shen. Um, I I mean, when you draft a guy fifth overall, which is what the Leafs did way back in 2008, Brian. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, that you draft him fifth overall. Um, you expect him to develop into a number one defenseman. And I mean, he played four years with the Leafs and was actually gone. You know, uh, he was, he was gone by the time he was a 22 year old. And, uh, Interesting enough, they drafted Morgan Riley with the same pick four years later, which I think they drafted him to replace Luke Shen. And uh, they're both, you know, playing stellar hockey. They're partners. Diff yeah. yeah. Different types of defensemen. Wildly different types of defensemen. Yeah. But Luke Shen, you know how you mentioned when he was between the benches? Um, mm -hmm. Basically, no, I wouldn't say calming things down, but just putting a wall in between things. Um that's kind of what he does on the ice, you know? Yeah. He His play allows other offensive-minded uh, defensemen to kind of do their thing, I think, knowing you got a steady no question. physical presence back there who's not going to be out of position, you know? And you you see he's even jumped up into the play uh, a couple of times. But I was, yeah, I, I was I have to say, you know, uh, he's – doesn't he doesn't play um when the Leafs are shorthanded he doesn't get pp time but uh mm -hmm. he's obviously you know like a steadying presence back there I, i'm really impressed in what he did in game three yeah he's definitely one of the newcomers who's having an impact throughout the first three games of this series so far as you know we talked about ryan o'reilly yep. and uh well let's talk about uh the biggest surprise for me in this series and uh, you can thank Michael Bunting for this or, you know, whatever you want to call what Michael Bunting did, uh, whether it's a gift or a curse. But the gift side of it is that Matthew Nyes is in the lineup. And Keith, they talked about this, uh, some of the pundits did and some of the analysts on several of the broadcasts I watched. And there were some varying degrees 
of, um, I guess, prognostication. There's the school of thought that said, well, you look at college guys coming out after tremendous seasons and deep runs in the playoffs, getting to the championship game, ultimately losing. Um, that can have a great impact on a player because they're used to playing in high-pressure situations. But to come up short can have a player, you know, fighting some of his his confidence because it's such a big game, the NC2A championship. It's a one-game winner-take-all and crushing when you lose and so uplifting when you win. Matthew and I has lost that game. So was he going to come in and play with the confidence of knowing he had a great season, he was a big factor, or is he going to be dwelling on the fact that he lost the ultimate game and his college career is open, is over, and he's, he's got that on his mind? Well, it seems to me that Matthew Nyes has gone the route where, hey, man, I just played a great season. I'm a great player. I've played in the highest pressure game of my life so far, and I came up a little short, but I got there. Let me ride that crest into the playoffs if I get into the lineup. And boy, he's coming to the lineup and it looks like he's riding that crest and he has played like he belongs in the top six, getting time with the top line, being not just effective, but impactful. At 20 years of age, this guy is an NHL player. Hey, listen, I, I think he played a really, uh, a really admirable game yesterday, but let's let's not turn him into Ken Dryden just quite yet. You know, Brian, I don't want, I don't think there's a Conn Smythe. He's got a ways to go. He's got yeah. a ways to go to match that. I status. don't think there's a Conn Smythe trophy in his near future. But yeah, I mean, he looked good. Uh, you can see the offensive moves are there. He looked, um, you know, that he was way better in his positioning. Uh, this is a guy who only played what three regular season games, and now is in, a, mm -hmm. in you know, and he's played two playoff games. His playoff, his position looked great. There was a great play uh, there where he, you know, you saw that nice one-two touch passing with him and Nylander that almost led to a that well, not almost led. It led to a great chance, one of the least few great chances in the third. Didn't lead to a goal, but yeah, you know, so the, so he's obviously uh, catching his stride. Um, you know, it'll be some questions, right? <laughs> uh, when the lease lineup is back to full strength, like where do you put him? What do you do with him? He looks like he's earned a spot, but, uh, you know, the guys on the quote-unquote bottom six, they're flying around out there as well, right? So, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, it's a great problem to have is a guy quickly finding his stride. And, you know, if the, pro if, if the problem for, was... Um, uh, goal scoring for the Maple Leafs, I would 100% say put this guy in the lineup. But I don't know if that necessarily is their problem, at least in this. You you mentioned they're scoring, what, almost five goals a game or four point something goals a yeah. game. So I don't know if that is actually their problem. So where does he fit um, when Michael Bunting comes back? Uh, I, I believe, what, in game five? Um, we'll see. We'll have to see. He's a great piece to have, though. A big guy with hands and speed, you know, with the nose for the net. I mean, you can never go wrong uh, having that guy in your lineup. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is a perfect time for us to segue into looking forward to game four. And what we can take away from game three that might uh, bleed into game four. And uh, to my way of thinking, uh, coming out of game three, there's a couple of ways to look at it. One... Uh, as we, as Sheldon Keefe talked about, the Leafs took Tampa's best shot and came away with a win. 
Tampa can look at that game and say, we absolutely dominated and got beat in overtime. We were the better team, didn't get the proper outcome. As they like to talk about as part of their uh, philosophy with the, with the Lightning, it's, it's process over outcome. Well, the process for them was brilliant. The outcome was less than what they wanted. So if you keep up with your same process, it's going to impact the outcome positively over the long haul. Well, the long haul now is three is what four three games. They've got three games left in this series, and they got to win three of them. So that's that's a tough road to hoe against any team, and the Leafs are one of the better teams in the league. However, they did dominate that game, so they know that their process is on point. Now they got to worry about the outcome. So going into Game Four, I'm not sure who has the advantage. Toronto, with the confidence of knowing that they can take your best knockout punch and come away standing up and actually end up with the victory, or Tampa knowing that we dominated a really good team and came that close, one minute left in the game, to a, a gaining an upper upper hand in this series. So Game Four, to me, I mean, it's a cliche to say it. It is the most linchpin game of the series. I mean, you're either going to be 3-1 or 2-2, right? So it is the most linchpin game of the series. And if, uh, if, if history is any indication, Tampa should be able to come away with a victory because these two teams, there's very little to choose between them. And um, a one-goal win in overtime certainly underscores that. So heading into game four, <laughs> I don't know. It's still a toss-up, man. It's a pick-up. As is, this series has been a pick from the time we knew it was going to be Tampa-Toronto going back to, what, January? So, yeah, my game for expectation, pretty much the same as game three. Maybe not the total domination that Tampa had, but definitely a close uh, one-score type game. Hopefully another overtime one. Well, you, you know what? This, um, this whole series, it's been a game, uh, you know, one game swing in Tampa's favor, then the Leafs dominate, then Tampa dominates, but loses. So going by that pattern, Brian, I would expect the Leafs to dominate, especially since, you know, like the game before, uh, like uh, game one, they were dominated and it showed on the score sheet. In game three, the Leafs were dominated less so than in game one, but it didn't reflect on the ultimate game sheet. So I expect the Leafs to, one, look around at each at you know, each player look around at each other and go, man, we escaped with a game. We escaped with a win that we shouldn't have, you know? So we didn't, we didn't come in here and crush these guys like we did in game two. So let's get out there and, and, you know, and, and play the game we can play the game. We can like the game we did in game two. And I expect the Leafs to actually come away and win. And also for the, you know, from the Tampa Bay side, it's, you know, when you, you work so hard to to actually win something and it's in within your grasp 60 seconds yeah. 60 seconds away from you guys skating off the ice and celebrating there's got to be a letdown i know these guys are pros but there has to be a letdown i think maybe less so with this tampa team because they've been there the last 3 plus seasons they've been you know they've been on top in, in the nhl so maybe they know how to handle it a little better but i think there's going to be that psychological letdown that, man, we sh we gave these guys everything we had in game three, and they mm -hmm. still won. So I'm expecting, 
the Leafs, you know, uh, you know, if I can make a prediction, I expect the Leafs to win in game four. And I expect it to be, uh, you know, uh, not a one goal game. Put it that way. Yeah. I expect be. it to be more um, than a one goal victory for Toronto. Maybe. But you know what I'm thinking about uh, heading into game four too, Keith? <laughs> As Matthews has played fairly well to this point. He's been a factor, not the ultimate factor. We still have yet to have a signature I'm tired of this nonsense type Matthews game. Um, and that seems to be lingering out there on the horizon. He's been this close to breaking out for a big game. Um, why not have it in game four? And I'm thinking that what happened to him in game three with Stamkos picking a fight with him for no reason other than the fact he wanted to, you know, take as many leaves to the penalty box with him as possible. That might galvanize Matthews to take his game to an even higher level. He might be so pissed off at what happened that he's going to say, you know what? I'm going to teach you guys a lesson. And the only the best way to do that is to put up numbers on the scoreboard. So I'm expecting in game four a supercharged Matthews to come out. He came out flying in game three. I expect him to come out like a jet flying in game four. So that's my expectations. And yeah, I expect that. I think you're 100% right about the, the way that Tampa lost and the way that they played, that's not a great combination for your prospects um, because that that's a high. You played so great, and to have a crushing loss like that, that's a hard low to get back up from. Tough one. And they've got some really banged-up players. As early as this series is, only three games, they got a lot of banged-up players. And the Leafs, for their part, look relatively healthy. So you combine all that, my expectation going into game four is a Leaf victory, but hey, I mean, we are talking about a team that's gone to the Stanley Cup final three years in a row. They've faced adversity. Uh, Tampa has been down this road before. So if they bounce back and came out with another great performance, and if Vasilevsky turns back into the Vasilevsky we know he's capable of being, then I wouldn't be surprised if Tampa tied the series up. But my expectation is for the Leafs to finally take a stranglehold on the series and not be the same old Leafs that we're used to. Yeah, and you know what? I, hey, by the way, I think that Stamkos picking uh, Matthews to fight with had more to do with the fact that, you know, it was Austin Matthews that he was fighting and, you know, he wasn't going to pick a guy who, uh, you know, I think he's trying to pick yeah. a guy similar to himself. One that, you know, that Stamkos was, you know, like, I have to make I got to stand up for Braden Point. We have to send a message. So let me let me let me do that as, you know, a good captain should do, you know. And and a bit surprising. I mean, I don't know how many fights Stamkos has had in his career. He's certainly not a guy who fights, you know, on a uh, monthly, you know, mm -hmm. basis in the NHL. But uh yeah, I mean, I, I you know what, when I look at the lineup again, I think the top end of the Leafs lineup is doing what they, they need to do uh, scoring-wise. And I, I think Tampa is, you know, they're getting secondary guys scoring. And I think that's a bit of the difference with with this, uh, um, this matchup. I think if the Leafs could get some of their bottom-end guys chipping in, I think game four... As I said, I think they're gonna, they're going to win that well, game Keith, by more than a don't couple. Forget, don't uh, forget, don't forget by that, more than a goal. Uh, you know, you, outside of the top group, Nola Chari scored the opening goal for the Leafs, so he's, you know, he's not considered one of their top end offensive guys, but he is oh, yeah. the third line, I guess you would call him. 
Oh yeah, no, I, 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 I'm not saying that. But you know, the, Tampa is. You're used to Tampa getting scoring from the Sorellis, yeah. from the you know the Hagels, you know those guys. Those you know, well, Nick Paul's their second. Uh, he's on the second line. But I mean, you're used to getting t- scoring from those guys. You know, you wouldn't be surprised if in the limited moment minutes that Corey Perry now plays, you know, he scores a big goal. That's been Tampa's way. Um, and I, I think what's, you know, the top end of their lineup, you know, kind of kind of let them down. And to me, I, I was texting yesterday with some uh, guys that, you know, were involved in hockey in the hockey world and asking them, what do you think of Steven Stamkos? And, you know, a lot of them are saying, like, he's a shell of his self, himself offensively in this series. So, I mean, to me, it's like, you know, they got to get it. They got to get it going. I mean, remember the goal scorers for them were Sorelli Hagel and, and Darren Radish, which uh, he had a beautiful goal yesterday. Don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. when those guys are scoring for you, um, you know, and your top end guys are off, are off the board, even though they had, you know, significant chances, you know, I don't, I don't see how you can beat a Leafs team that is, uh, you know, you know, firing on all cylinders offensively, especially in in game four. So, yeah, for many reasons. I mean, I I see this as Toronto's game uh, in game four. And if they lose it, I'll be quite surprised, even though it's on the road. And they may make our prediction of a six-game series win, a five-game series win, Brian. (laughs) Well, Keith, you know me. I'm, I'm all about don't go to six, don't go to seven for this Toronto team. Because uh, in in pre and then we talked about history in the previous broadcast. Uh, history is not on the side of the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's weighs heavily on the size of the light, Lightning. So get it done in five. I would love to see that. Um, that's as good a place as any to end our look at the Leafs and what they're doing against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Now let's take a spin uh, through the rest of the playoffs, starting with what's going on in the Eastern Conference. And right off the bat, Keith, I want to get to the. Uh, New Jersey Devils and the New York Rangers, who looked like they were going to run away with this series after posting back-to-back 5-1 wins in New Jersey. And lo and behold, who comes out the winner with a rookie goaltender standing on his head? The Devils. They managed to hold off the Rangers and stave the 3-0 series lead and turn it into a 2-1 series lead for the uh, Rangers. But... Um, a rookie goaltender comes in and does the job for the Devils. Yeah, and you know they they put him in on the road. Uh, smart move by to by them, right? By the Devils. Akira Schmid, mm-hmm. I, I, I probably my favorite uh, first name <laughs> in the NHL, Akira. And uh, I mean, here's a guy yeah. who I mean he only played what I mean he only started 16 games during the regular season. You know he had great numbers. Mm-hmm. But he's clearly your backup, and he comes in and uh, you know shuts out the uh, shuts out the Rangers for what three periods of hockey, um, you know comes c- come from behind. I mean it was only one nothing, but you know making the big saves when you need them, the timely saves. You know it's not like he outplayed Shosturkin, but I mean you know sometimes. No, yeah, sometimes, you know, you, you just need a steadying presence in the net. And to have that presence coming from a guy who's 22 years old and, uh, you know, has only played in 16 games, 
in his NHL career. That's huge. But, you know, this is it's not unpre- unprecedented in the NHL playoffs, you know, for a rookie goaltender to make his mark and to, you know, give you what you need. I mean, the the it's kind of funny because you, you would think, you know, OK, well, the Devils, um, they've scored two goals so far in the series. So what do we need to do? We need uh, to change our goaltending. Um, you yeah. know what, if I'm, if I'm the devils, I, I get excited about Schmidt, but I don't get too excited because, you know, in, what is that in, in, uh, 10 periods of hockey, you've only scored four times, you know, and that's not going to get it done throughout a, throughout a playoff series against the New York Rangers. You know what I mean, Brian? Like you've got to start getting your, you know, your stars have to get going. I mean, you know, Dougie Hamilton, you know, uh, scored in overtime. Jack Hughes scored. But, you know, these guys, you know, Jack Hughes is a 99-point scorer. I mean, Dougie Hamilton, I, I can't even remember, like had his best offensive season ever. And this is a, this is a um, obviously, you know, I'm talking, this is a, uh, a defenseman. But what about the other guys? You know, what about the other guys who scored all year? You know, like Jack Hughes was, you know, um, you know, his play was fantastic uh, through the year, but you know, where's Timo Meyer? They brought you in for offense. They brought you in for this situation. Where are you, uh, you know, in the goal scoring department, you know, Jesper Brett, I know he had a couple of assists, but where are you scoring goals? Nico Heischer, you know? So those guys need to start scoring because I'm going to tell you, you're not going to win the next, uh, four, the next, well, I guess you need to win three. You're not going to win three more games against the Rangers, similar to the Leafs, uh, as you said, with the Lightning situation. You're not going to beat mm-hmm. the Rangers three more times in four games, scoring one goal per game. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, offensively, they need to figure this game out. You know, I mean, they figured out the Rangers. I say they figured out the Rangers defensively, but uh, the Rangers still fired 36 shots on that, Brian. So, you know, yep. you, you know, you put a hot goalie in, and that was the remedy for one game. But, uh, yeah, the way you're playing has to change if you expect to win the series. I, I'm, I, on this, we disagree on a lot, but I know you agree with me on this one. Oh, no question. I think that if you can't score, again, if you can't put the threat of scoring into the Rangers, you're not going to win that series. And, you know, riding the coattails of a rookie goaltender, that might get you one game. It's not going to get you a series. Um, and speaking of a rookie or a not-so-rookie goaltender, is the shine off Alex Lyons in the Florida Panthers net. They trailed the Boston Bruins 2-1 in their series. And, you know, as as well as Alex Lyon has played, and what a great story he's been, the 30-year-old career AHL goaltender, Boston has scored some, you know, kind of questionable goals against him. And uh, as game four of that series tips off uh, in a later on today after we record this podcast, Boston lead that series 2-1, and Florida probably could be better off in this series if they'd gotten better goaltending. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to say better goaltending, but I'll say more timely goaltending. But you know what? I think that That's has... probably more appropriate. Yeah, I think it has less to do with, with uh, Florida and Alex Lyons than, you know what? He had a great season, but he wasn't facing Boston all the time down the stretch. You know what I mean? 
Boston, mm-hmm. we, we both said it. Boston has a way of winning games uh, that they shouldn't, of coming from behind to win games. And, you know, frankly, I, I was shocked in game two that they allowed three goals in the, uh, in the uh, third period to, uh, to win, uh, or four goals in the third period to uh, allow a, a uh, come-from-behind win, or not a come-from-behind win, but allow the Panthers to win that game. That surprised me mm-hmm. more than, you know, any goaltending that, you know, Boston allowed a, a tied game to get to become a blowout, basically. So, yeah, I mean, I, I still like Lyons. I, I mean, what he's done, and I think he's going to rebound from this and, and play a tighter game. But again, the Florida Panthers can play their best game, Brian, and still lose to a, a shorthanded Bruins team. It's just the way the Bruins can grind you and that all four lines do not stop coming after you, you know? So, you know, hey, look, 65 regular season wins, I mean, to Florida's 42, that's quite a differential. And, you know, there's something that, you know, there's a reason for that differential. You know what I mean? There's a reason for it. So to expect them to to uh you know goaltending to be the only factor in uh in the reason why um Alex Lyon you know like or Alex Lyon to come up big as you said he's a 30 year old guy he's had a hot month and change right now um so you know hopefully you know that he can uh you know he can rebound i mean the the bruins are firing a lot of shots at him as well you know so yeah uh, yeah. He can. I. I don't think he'll be the deciding factor. I think Florida has really got to just grind the Bruins down, uh, you know, and play the full sixty. I know it's easy to say play the full sixty, but you really do have to play every single moment against Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens in Game Four of that series. Also, t- uh, tipping off with Game Four is the New York Islanders and the Carolina Hurricanes which that series is also at a 2-1 advantage in favor of the Hurricanes. And for the most part, Carolina has has carried the play in this series. That's why they have a 2-1 lead. But that last game, boy, uh, the Islanders really took it to them with a 5-1 win. So who has the advantage heading into game four? <sighs> Again, Brian, I'd have to take, you know, Carolina. I, I have to go with... Really? Yeah, I mean... You know, the games have all been the games, prior games were the were the type of games both teams like to play Uh, close games, defensive minded games. And Carolina won those games. The Islanders, not I'll say not true to form. Uh, What do they do? They scored the four fastest goals, right? In playoff playoff history, history. right? That's not what the Islanders do. (laughs) <laughs> you know no, no you know so uh, that was an aberration of all aberrations well thank you me. you just said it it was an aberration so i mean you know i don't expect anything like that to happen for the uh for the islanders in in game four so that's for that reason mm-hmm. i've got to go with carolina carolina if, if if the islanders could play like this every night and i don't mean the four fast, fastest goals but if you could count on yeah. the Islanders for three, four maybe goals per night, I could see them. And I guess uh, I guess their game may be an afternoon game. <laughs> so, but if you if you can count on them for three, four goals a night, I could see 
them uh, taking game four and, and, you know, rebounding in this series, but uh, you can't. I think that the game one and two Islanders team is what the Islanders are. And, and that's what I'm expecting them to revert to. As you said, it's an aberration. I know what that means, Brian. I don't have to look that one up. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, th- th- yeah. those two teams, that series is definitely lacking in offensive flair. But as we turn our attention to the Western Conference, there's no lacking offensive flair in a couple of the series out there, particularly the Colorado-Seattle matchup, which now is 2-1 in favor of Colorado as they turn on the gas in the third to outpace the Kraken 6-4. Talk about an offensive outburst, man. Um, That's a very entertaining series. And as much as I like what Seattle's trying to do, Colorado seems to be getting better with each and every period and each and every game and are rounding into their, you know, leading contender in the West type form. Oh, yeah. Well, Brian, I picked them to win uh, the Stanley Cup. And I mean, I'm, I'm sticking with that pick. And for the reasons of, you know, the big guys, you know, McCarr, McKinnon, Rantanen, all made their yeah. mark in this series, uh, in, in game three. They all came to, like, mm-hmm. not that these guys don't all come to play, but they, 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 they influence this game heavily in game three. And, you know, I give full marks to Seattle. I mean, man, they battled back from a 3-1 deficit. You know, but then again, you know, all of a sudden, third period starts and a couple of quick goals by Colorado Stars and you're down two, you're down two, two goals again, right? And, you know, hard to yeah. battle back from. So, you know, the, the avalanche, exactly that, an avalanche of offense, you know, and Seattle, um, you know, Seattle who's, you know what? I, I, people don't want to call Seattle a, a good team, a great team, whatever. I think they're a very good team. They don't have the stars to match up mm-hmm. with uh, Colorado. And I think that, you know, we, we, you know, a lot of times we think that hockey isn't as much of a star-driven league as, say, basketball. But uh, when you've got the Nathan McKinnons, you know, you got last year. We're talking about... You know, we're talking about Ryan O'Reilly as a Con Smythe winner. We got last year's Con Smythe winner, you know, playing at you know close to the top of his game, you know, and you got a, a 50 goal score in uh, you know in um, Miko Rantanen, you know, what did he get? And like he got 55, 56. Maybe the yeah. best defenseman in the league. Exactly. I mean, that's hard to uh, you know to keep under you to keep the wraps, keep under the lid, and you know you know Cal- Colorado, you know only scored once in the first game and they only, you know, they scored, they had three goals in game two, you know? And so, I mean, this is what you, again, it's what you expect. These teams are who they are. You expect an offensive explosion, uh, you know, a a couple of them in a series, you know, and in game, you know, in game, uh, I'd say in game two, the Avs only scored three times, but they did have 41 shots, Brian. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this is what, you know, this is what you expect from Colorado, and you're right; they're playing better, period to period. So look out, look out, uh, Kraken going forward. Yeah, you you really don't want to get into a wide open offensive battle with the Colorado Avalanche. Speaking of three goal comebacks, uh, the Jets trailed the Vegas Golden Knights four oh, yeah. one heading into the third in Game Three, and then bang, force overtime with an Adam Lowry goal 
in the dying seconds, only to come up on the short end of a 5-4 score in the second overtime as Vegas won it on a just a uh, an unfortunate playoff, a skate of a Jets player to a wide open Michael Amadeo in front of the net and bang, it's it's over. Um, hey, I'm not unhappy whenever the Winnipeg Jets lose, but that's a tough way to lose a playoff game, boy. Yeah, really tough. I mean, Dylan Sandberg too. Like we got to mention is is he on the yep. is he on the ice at that moment? Uh, you know, uh, maybe they maybe they they're playing him less. You know, if Josh Morrissey is still um, is still able to go after he got injured, not that. No, hundred. Well, big big time pickup by you. Josh Morrissey's loss is huge, and I don't think I think you're hundred percent right. If he's he would be on the ice at that time more than likely because he's gonna pull 30, 40 minutes of ice time in a game that goes to double overtime easily, and he's he's always gonna make a great play to get the puck out of his zone. So it's hard to fault Dylan Sandberg on what essentially was just an unfortunate carom, but you gotta believe that if Josh Morrissey is healthy and able to play, Sandberg might not be in that situation. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know what? And and let's be honest, that play was not his. It wasn't his fault that play. That was just an unfortunate play for him, you know. And and yeah. uh, you know, a great shot by uh, that noted goal scorer Michael Amadeo. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, but I mean that was a bang bang play. Of all, the, of all the Golden Knights to score a goal, like you would not be picking him to be your overtime hero. But that is the antithesis of not the antithesis, the very nature of what playoff hockey is about. The unsung hero scoring an overtime goal, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know what? Like we said, it was it was a bang-bang play. And mm-hmm. against, I would say, you know, obviously the, the Jets had all the momentum. Uh, I guess, you know, they had the momentum after that third, three goals to come back. And what a, was that uh, was that Leafs comeback not a mirror? Uh, that Leafs goal to force overtime, the third goal, not a mirror of the Jets' fourth goal? I mean, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, just happened in they, the same you, way. You, you could overlay them over each other, and they would look exactly the same. Man, it was un, it was uncanny. Exactly. Except the Leafs, except the Jets actually went into double overtime, and they were the you know they were the victims of you know a bad goal. But you know it's funny they they really bounced back. I mean you know they I fair to say they were handled in game two, and for me they yeah. they really bounced back in that third period. And, and, you know, it's funny is they, they really didn't play um, a terrible overall hockey game. I just think that mm-hmm. the Golden Knights, man, they were just flying. Like they were putting, you know, they were flying offensively, but yeah. the Jets didn't play poorly. And, you know, and in double overtime, they, that's, that's a double overtime goal. You know, you see less one-on-ones, great passing plays to in overtime, especially in double overtime. I mean, we could probably pull 20 double overtime goals and there's a, a deflected shot off a skate involved or off someone's knee or off their ass. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the way that's yeah. the way you score in double overtime. And you know, this time the Jets were just victim to it. So I, I think of, you know, with them, they're probably in one of the best positions for me coming back, being at home for game four. Um, and going that deep into, you know, and going into double overtime to lose, I think they can still look at their third period and go, okay, guys, we can do that against the, the Golden Knights. We're here for a series. Let's go. Well, the unexpected is generally the norm when it gets to double overtime in the Stanley Cup playoffs. 
um, which is my way of segueing to what I think is an unexpected series lead by the LA Kings over the Edmonton Oilers as they get set for game four in their series. As much as I thought as I chose LA as my dark horse, I called them my dark horse for a reason. I thought they were going to lose to Edmonton, but if they could get out of this series, watch out for the Kings. Well, lo and behold, they walk into game four with a 2-1 series lead, and Edmonton is left scratching their head at how they are in this position and wondering just what do they have to do to take hold of this series. And to, for my liking, they've got to get going offensively. Imagine that. You're talking about a lack of offense from the Edmonton Oilers, who were probably the best offensive team in the league this year. So they got to get going. But, I mean, what are the Kings known for? Great defensive play, two big, strong defensive centers, and they have, have taken hold of this series and uh, have control of it heading into game four. You know what? The Oilers fired, I mean, it was an overtime game. 42 shots. 42 shots. And, you know, and the Kings are still alive. I don't know if you're a Godfather mm -hmm. fan, but that's a great line from the Godfather. We hit him with seven shots, and he's still alive. So the Kings <laughs> hit them with 42. I should say the Oilers hit them with 42 shots. Connor McDavid, hey, he's got a score. Yeah, he got two uh Power play goals, pretty much like mirror copies of each other. Uh, seven shots on net. I mean, uh, you know, he's the biggest gun in the league. I mean, you need to, uh, you know, the Oilers, I think, you know, maybe we've we got to see if they can break through and if they can score a, uh, you know, if they can put up a five spot against the Kings in regulation or six goals. Oilers were the highest scoring team in the NHL this year. Mm -hmm. You know, even, even more goals than the Bruins. They were the highest scoring team in the NHL. And right now they're not playing like it. So, I mean, you know, three goals, four goals, three, uh, two goals. So what is that? That's uh, nine goals in, in, a, in a three goal, you know, nine goals in three games, which is actually under their average. Um, a lot of teams would be happy for three, three, uh, three goals a game in a playoff series, but for the Oilers, I mean, you've got to go out there and be who you are. Um, you're only down two one. I mean, maybe you're not that, you know, freewheeling and maybe you don't take as many chances, but you know, at some point you got to press it and be who you are. You know, <clears throat> uh, I expect, you know, the Oilers, what three guys with a hundred points in their lineup, you know, there's yeah. that's that's what you got to do. Got to find ways to find ways to score. I mean, you only had uh, in last in the last game, I'm, they didn't score on in even strength. I mean, both of McDavid's goals were on the power play. So let's get some even strength goals going. You know, um, you know. Interestingly enough, uh, you know, I guess the whole game there was only one even strength goal. And that was in the first period. So it is a game of uh, specialty teams right now in the Oilers-Kings series. And Kings specialty teams are matching or exceeding Edmonton's at the moment. So you got the, you've got the best special teams, on, well, the best power play. And you scored the most goals of this year. You, you've got to do that in this series if you want to win. Well, that's the. I think that's been the key so far throughout three games is that the Kings have been able to stymie the Oilers five on five and then match them 
in, in, in the specialty team category. And if that's the case, man, it's going to be, it makes it a whole lot tougher to see Edmonton coming out of this series. But hey, I, I, I got to think that they're going to find a way to untangle themselves from the tentacles. I should use tentacles with the Kraken, not the Kings, but it seems like the Kings have the Oilers wrapped up right where they want them in a mostly defensive struggle throughout the first three games. But game four, you know, you got to think that at some point Connor McDavid is going to shake loose and go on one of his uh, offensive forays where he scores three goals and gets five points at some point in the playoffs. Game four might be just when that happens. Now, the most surprising series to me throughout all of these playoffs has got to be Minnesota and Dallas. I thought Dallas was going to have their way with Minnesota, but look at this. Look at this. We're heading into game four. Minnesota leads it two, two games to one. And, you know, Keith, I, I tell you, I don't know what to make of this Minnesota Wild team because I thought on paper – even though the games aren't played on paper, they just did not have the firepower to stay with Dallas. And it looked like after game two, that would be the question. A 5-1 winning game three has certainly turned this series on its head with Minnesota leading 2-1 heading into game four. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Minnesota is going to be playing that game four at home as well. You know, so they, mm -hmm. to come away, uh, like to take the home ice advantage away in game one, I mean that that's quite a statement, and to you know to win in front of to to win as you're supposed to win at home. I mean, really, with a dominating, uh, dominating win after you just got bombed uh, the game before. I mean, it bodes yeah. well for Minnesota, and you know Minnesota's got some you know they've got some proven. We wouldn't call it traditional firepower, but they've got some proven playoff performers in their lineup. Um, so, you know, the, the guys, some guys are you, Hey, Matt Zuccarello, where's he? Oh, well, there he is. He's in Minnesota scoring goals that matter, you know, for the wild. And I, I guess, you know, the game was in a, in effect done after the second period, there was a period and a half where, you know, Dallas just went away offensively, you know, when they were trailing two to one. So, you know, you're, you're not going to get that, not going to get it done in Minnesota, which, by the way, has a great, as we know, they've got the great hockey atmosphere. They're obviously, mm -hmm. the fans and everyone are obviously more jacked because they're playing their former franchise, Dallas Stars. You know, when you walk away from me, right? What's the best revenge? Yeah. <laughs> you Winning. Yeah, you left me. <laughs> it's like a relationship, yeah. you know? Yeah. A guy like Brian Dunstan, uh, People don't leave him, so he doesn't understand that analogy. But uh, when, oh no, not at all, Keith, <laughs> not at all. When you, but you know, you know what I mean. Like it, to beat the to beat the Dallas Stars when you're an undergrad, an underdog, would be great for the franchise, the players, and the city of Minnesota, right? So I, I think Minnesota mm -hmm. is all in. Um, so you said it earlier. Game four, of course, is pivotal, and it's a two to one. But, you know, for the, for the Wild to go up 3-1, to one, that's going to be a hard, really hard, uh, you know, road for Dallas to travel to win this series. So I, I'm, actually, I'm actually surprised because, like you, I was like, where is Minnesota going to find the scoring before, like, before the series started to match with Dallas? And uh, they've, they've obviously found it.
Yeah, to this point in the playoffs in the NHL, that is definitely the most surprising uh, turn of events. Uh, and speaking of turn of events, let's turn our attention now to hoop. And we're going to go quickly through the NBA playoffs, Keith, because obviously the big news for us in basketball is the uh, Toronto Raptors and head coach Nick Nurse parting of ways earlier this week. Uh, Nick Nurse has been relieved of his duties. We'll get to that and go dive into that. But let's run through these playoff series and see where sure. they're at um, before we get into the Raptors news. And I think we should start with what is obviously the most surprising uh, series to this point, primarily because of injury. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks have been without Giannis and Tedekumpo for much of this series, and they find themselves trailing the Miami Heat two games to one after getting absolutely shellacked in game three, 121-99, after doing the reverse and shellacking Miami without Giannis in game two. So somehow Miami has found a way to put up big numbers in every game against Milwaukee and now find themselves with a 2-1 series lead. And I think the uh, Bucks may be missing Giannis a little bit. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, that's there it is, right there. You need Giannis. I mean, yeah. you run most of your stuff through him all year. And uh, you you can get that rally game like you did in game two, um, you know, and but even in game two they did not stop the Heat from scoring, you know the Heaters no. are averaging what about 124 points a game, I mean yeah. somewhere and remember you know you supposedly got you know Drew Holiday, perennial uh, defensive player of the year, um, you know type of player. And you supposedly have... And Robin Lopez was up up for Defensive Player of the Year I, this year. I was year. just about to say, Brooke Lopez, you know, and... Sorry, Brooke Lopez, yeah. And and, and you're, you know, you're letting uh, Miami score 124 points a game. Uh, you don't have Giannis, yeah. of course, but, the, you know, you got to shut down the opposition with Giannis on the floor or off the floor. For me, that's it right there. Giannis, obviously, massive yeah. hole. Probably the biggest hole you can find in the NBA. Uh, well, there's an, one, maybe one other, but massive hole, and you got to tighten up that defense. No question. All right, let's head to the Boston-Atlanta series, where Boston leads 2-1 after losing in Atlanta to 130-122 uh, to the Hawks. And um, while you talk about defense, Boston was one of the better defensive teams in this uh NBA this past season and they pretty much lived up to that in the first two games but giving up 130 points to the Hawks and by the way Keith I don't know if you watched that game that was a, a hard game for me to watch just the way these two teams are the way they play left a lot to be desired to me it just looked like a sloppy jacking up threes no real flow to the game type of thing and they and Boston just allowed Trey Young to do whatever the hell he wanted in that game and they're supposed to be one of the better defensive teams in the league just it's that was a hard game and it's been a kind of a hard series to watch but as much as Atlanta you know came away with that victory I don't expect them to put up much of an opposition to the Celtics they're gonna they're probably gonna take this series but hey it's 2-1 and you know game four is ahead you know what uh with that with that game it's funny because the Celts just seemed like they you know they, they were good from behind the three-point line in that game, but just seemed like they, as you said, it was a really sloppy game. And that's the kind yeah. of game that maybe, hey, if you don't have the talent uh, to match up and with an as an Atlanta team doesn't with Jason, Ta you know, against the, the Celtics, 
um, that's the kind of game you got to win. And, you know, it wasn't like they blew them out. It was a high-scoring game, despite its sloppiness. Mm-hmm. Both teams were just hitting threes. And Trey Young was called out before this game. Like, many people were calling him out in the media, you know, around the NBA, even on social media, just saying, you know, you can't win with this guy. And he went out there and he performed. But, yeah, I mean, this was just not its just not the kind of game that we're going to see for the rest of the series, I think. No, not at all. Um, how about Philadelphia and Brooklyn? Yeah. No Embiid, no problem. Four-game sweep. Just a, a deficit of talent with the Nets. And the Sixers had too much uh, in this series. I mean, what more can be said about that? Philly wins it four nothing and advanced to the second round. Yep, and they did. You said it. They did it without Embiid and with James Harden only hitting four field goals. If I told you that yeah. before, you would have said, "Okay, well, you know what? The Nets are going to get this one at home." But the Nets just, you know, they just couldn't match them uh, offensively. You know, they, they they didn't get anything from the bench. You know, they shot, you know, poorly. Philly shot poorly as well, but you know. Philly was almost perfect from the line, and that's the difference, you know? That that was the difference mm-hmm. in the game. And Philly's just a more, obviously, a team that's been together longer. Um, they can, you know, weather um, not having Embiid in their lineup uh, for one game against an overmatched opponent. No question. Um, hey, is it 1991 or 92 or something in New York? <laughs> Talk about a slugfest, like just not on, on a one-sided slugfest, if you can call it that. New York came out, beat the Cleveland Cavaliers 99-79 to take a 2-1 series lead. And I swear to God, I saw Anthony Mason on the court <laughs> because all they did was just bludgeon the Cavaliers. And then offensively, they got just enough shooting to win the game by 20 in a game that was 99-79 in 2023. It was like 1990 all over again, man. The Knicks, I, I was shocked at that game. I was watching thinking, this looks just like something from three decades ago. It was unbelievable. Yeah, crazy. Eh? It's funny because each game of this series, by the way, Brian, has had a team mm-hmm. that has scored less than 100 points. So in the 2023 yep. NBA, that's really, really surprising. Um, for me, the Knicks are basically, you know, they're winning the way they think they can win. I mean, you know, you don't want it. Do you want to get into, do you want to get into a shootout with Donovan Mitchell? No. Um, You know, so the Knicks, I think that, you know, they just are winning the game the way they are. And Jalen Brunson, I've, like I've told you before, always loved this guy's game. You know, he's, you know, not the traditional uh, athletic looking point guard a bit of a thicker body but the guy just knows how to score he knows how to orchestrate an offense and he's one of those guys that now didn't need it in this game but he's one of those guys brian that gets you like you can rely on him to get you the crucial bucket and he's just orchestrating this man like you're right this yeah the late great anthony mason would have been proud of this game Mm -hmm. no question so the, the the Knicks have a 2-1 series lead there. And for my money, <laughs> I don't know if Cleveland has enough stones to hang in a rock fight with the Knicks. So uh, we'll see. You know, they're up to, uh, Knicks are up 2-1, and they may, may have found the formula 
to take that series over the higher-seeded Cavs. All right, let's turn our attention out west where there are some very intriguing happenings and some uh, not, I guess, really competitive series taking place because of injury for the most part. So let's start with uh, the one that's um, most impacted by injury. That, of course, is the Phoenix Suns now with a 3-1 lead over the L.A. Clippers, who are without Kawhi Leonard and Paul George yet again. Um, I don't know. I think this series is is over. You might as well book it for the uh, Suns there, um, pun intended, as, uh, you know, Booker is just playing tremendous for the Suns, as is Chris Paul, as is KD, Kevin Durant. Um, and without Kawhi to combat that big three, big three, I don't think the Clippers hold a snowball's chance in hell or a snowball's chance in the desert of extending yeah. the series past the next game. No chance. I mean, when you're relying on a, uh, I'll say, a fantastic performance from Russell Westbrook, mm-hmm. uh, who went out and got 37, but Westbrook could always score. Um, it's just the way he's scoring, the way he's playing defense like a man possessed. I mean, this is going to go a way to rehabilitating, I believe, uh, his career a bit. But yeah, they gave yeah, everything. Yeah, Keith, they... Let me let me interject that one point right here. Let's end the Russell Westbrook slander, all you people out there. Enough of that. This guy's a great player who plays big in big games. Let's let's knock it off with the slander because you got to appreciate what he's showing he can do in this series, despite the oh. fact they're going to get humbled by Phoenix. Well, you know, player, players know, right? And, you know, you got 100%. players on the Suns shouting out Russell Westbrook's effort. But without, uh, you, you can do it with one of those, without Kawhi or without Paul George, but you can't do it. You know what? I, I don't need to get into anything more. The Suns, you cannot, you, the Clippers cannot beat the Suns without at least one of those two guys in their lineup. And I thought yeah. without both of them in the lineup, that it was going to be a, a really tough thing. And you got to wonder how much longer do the Clippers go with these guys as their two big guns? Because you, you you can't rely on them, Brian. It's no. been proven year after year since they've been there. What's Is this Kawhi's third or fourth season out there? Fourth. Fourth season out there. And these guys can't stay healthy and they can't stay healthy at the same time. You know, yeah. both guys I, played know, like 60 games this year. Yeah. At some point in a future podcast, Keith, we're going to have to focus in on the Clippers and what may go down as the biggest what if in NBA history, because there's tendrils of impact from how the Clippers went about building this team that created situations in Toronto, created situations across the hall in the, in, with the Lakers and obviously uh, have impacted how the Western Conference playoffs have gone in the last few seasons. So we'll, we'll dive deep into that in the future uh, podcast because there is a massive what if surrounding the LA Clippers. Now, the other series that is just like, it's, you know, put a fork in them, they're done, is the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Denver Nuggets. Denver leads that series. Three love, no surprise there. It's a deficit in talent and a deficit in effort, if you ask me. Um, Denver's in a cakewalk against the Timberwolves. I'd be shocked if they don't close out uh, game four in game four today. Um, you know, mm-hmm. 
Jokic is doing what he does. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. is playing well. Jamal Murray is playing well. And I mean, you know, that's the thing. You know, when you got two players getting almost double-digit assists, Jokic with 12 and Murray with 9, and, you know, it's reflective. The Clippers are shooting. Clippers shot 57% in Game 3. You know, they're getting easy baskets um, and making, you know, and making uh, Minnesota uh, take hard shots. I mean, that's that's a formula for for winning. And it shouldn't be a shock. I mean, you know, like, you know, uh, Minnesota was a play in team and Denver is first in the West. You know, this is what really Mm -hmm. the series should look like. So, yeah, I mean, I'd be shocked if they closed it out, if they close it out. If they don't close it out, I will have questions about Denver's um, mental fortitude as a team. Because going forward, you know, a lot of Denver, as I said, they were first in the West, but a lot of people are not picking them to come out of the West. They're picking that team from Phoenix. So you're going to need some, some mental strength later on in the playoff rounds to to come out of the west so this is will be a good test for denver as a team to close it out on the road no never easy to win on the road in the nba right so let's see you close it out on the road yeah well i i thoroughly expect them to do let's talk about the memphis grizzlies and the los angeles lakers which is a series that has become rife with intrigue primarily (laughs) because of the dylan brooks lebron james battle now the lakers won uh game three at home to take a 2-1 series lead, basically on the strength of a first quarter, which was, I don't know if you saw this, Keith, but I was watching this. I was like, that might be the lowest scoring quarter I've seen in NBA playoff history. And it was, 35-9. to Game done right there. Now, John Morant would go on to put in 45 points on some incredible shooting, especially in the fourth quarter, to make it look respectable. But this game was done after the first quarter. And the intrigue is coming in and what the Canadian boy, Dylan Brooks, is has going on with LeBron James. Um, I don't know what's in Dylan Brooks' head, but he better be careful, man, because if LeBron James decides to say, okay, I've had enough, which it looks like he may have had, um, I don't see how the Grizzlies can beat the Lakers. But uh, you never know. You never know. Well, I think both of us picked uh, this as a quote-unquote, upset in the first round, right? Potentially, Both yeah, of us. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we did. So mm-hmm. I'm not shocked by what the Lakers are doing, but I'll tell you, that first quarter yesterday was like watching, man, it was like watching, you know, the Fresh Prince slap Chris Rock in the Oscars. It was cringeworthy, <laughs> you know? Absolutely cringeworthy, Brian. Uh, I, I was see, just like... I didn't see that one coming <laughs> That was good. No, man. It was cringeworthy. I was like, Dylan Brooks. Dylan Brooks came out and said, yeah, I poked the bear. LeBron's old. You know what I mean? All Mm. of these things. And LeBron went, you know, face-to-face with him pregame and and was, you know, giving him – he didn't tell people what he said, but he said, hey, I said it right to his face in front of the whole world. Um, And LeBron, to me, LeBron – is not having, uh, I mean, he's not scoring as much in the playoffs as he did in the regular season, but I don't think for LeBron feels he has to, you know? I, I don't think he he feels he has to. He's been having, like, man, come on, Rui Hachimura? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've loved this guy since his Gonzaga days, but he's having a great playoffs, yep. you know? And Austin Reeves, mm-hmm. he's having a great playoffs. But the man, as we know, the Lakers, and LeBron will tell you, as Antonio Davis goes, this is how the Lakers will go. And he had a monster, monster game. Yep. You know, 31 31 and 17 with three blocks, you know, that's it. And I, I think LeBron knows too that, you know, and, and and the whole Lakers team knows, let's get AD going as soon as we can. Mm-hmm. Can't have a game like he did in game two. Let's get him going and, and we'll win. And I think, uh, hey, look, you know LeBron James. You, people like him. They dislike him. He is all about winning. I don't even think he needs the Dylan Brooks incentive no. to play better. No. You but, know? you know, as much as I admire the moxie that Dylan Brooks is showing, do you realize what you're doing? That's LeBron James. That isn't just some punk from down the block. It's LeBron James who's in who's in the argument to be the greatest player in the history of the game. You don't think he's going to take what you do and turn it around on you? Hell yes. Good luck with that. You know, LeBron is, look, LeBron is just flat out great. And he's going to do great things in order to put his team in a position to win. And that's what he's done throughout the these uh, three games so far. Um, I'm going to give props to Memphis for fighting back in that game. But they have a very tough road to hoe. Defensively, the Lakers have found something. Offensively, if Anthony Davis can keep the level of play at where it's at for him, it's going to be very tough for the Grizzlies to find their way through this series. Oh, yeah. I think you're right. I think the Lakers, though, they know what they need to do to win. I don't even think they care to beat Memphis by 30. I think a 10-point win is enough for them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the La- yeah, Memphis fought back. Yeah, but the Lakers were up by so much. I think as long as they could get out of the building without sweating and, and get that <laughs> win, I think they were happy. I really do. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Okay, let's turn our attention to uh, the Golden State Warriors and the Sacramento Kings as uh, they've gone to the uh, cozy confines of their home arena and um, Golden State came away with a victory. No surprise here that Golden State lost both games on the road and one at home. It's kind of what they've done pretty much all season, uh, which means that they're going to lose this series in seven if it keeps the way it's going. That wouldn't surprise me. You know, unless somehow Golden State finds a formula that enables them to pull out games on the road, they're they're not going to beat Sacramento. And Sacramento's got confidence that they can beat Golden State. Uh, it's their first taste of the playoffs in what twenty years, and they seem to be relishing this this uh, playoff style combat that they're in. That being said, I'll say two words: Steph Curry. There you go. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he played played. Well, he shot well. Uh, it did surprise me a bit that they were able to win uh, so handily without Draymond Green, uh, who was sitting out a suspension for stomping on Damonta Sabonis in Game 2. Um, that was a little surprising. I actually wish, believe it or not, that because I want, I want uh, Golden State to beat Sacramento, not just because I picked them to for another upset, but I... I they're good for playoff basketball, right? They're, oh, yeah. They're a good team to watch. So I want them to win, but I don't think 
the kings of any fear of the Warriors, especially at home. And that's why I was going to say, I wish that Draymond Green wasn't coming back until game five, because I know when he does come back, he's going to be coming back with a fire lit under him. So that, if he, for me, if he had come back in game five, that would be a game that, you know, that uh, the Warriors um, would have, uh, uh, would be on the road, would be in Sacramento. And maybe he could impact that game for a win because you're correct. Golden State has to beat a team that has zero fear of them on the road. And, and that's going to be real tough. I still yeah. think they're going to do it in a surprising game. Maybe one of those games where, uh, you know, Steph goes off for 40, um, you know, and maybe one of those games, you know, and you, not just Steph, but Clay Thompson tosses in 35, you know, maybe one of those games where they just cannot miss. Yeah, which, which, mean, could, that, make, that could, be which could happen. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Another un, uh, factor I think could be weighing heavily on this series is each game that Andrew Wiggins plays, um, he's getting a little more comfortable after being out for so long. Um, X factor for sure there. If he can find his way to being the, the guy he was in the playoffs last season, I think all bets are off the table in terms of Golden State being able to pull off, which would be, I guess, a minor upset, but an upset nonetheless if they can somehow find their way past the Kings. So I think we need to watch what happens with uh, Wiggins. And it seems to me he's getting a little more comfortable each game, um, which does bode well for the Warriors. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think he's been playing, like, you know, really well. For a guy who sat out for months, what did he miss, 30 games or something? Yeah, 30-something, like yeah. Yeah, he's played really well. And he, he's, uh, you know, starting, coming off the bench, it doesn't seem to matter. He's a positive influence. And what's interesting to me is since going to Golden State, he's really de- redefined himself. Maybe was wrongly cast as a guy who wouldn't do the dirty work, but he does a lot of the dirty work that even a Draymond Green kind of does. So yeah. that, you know, when you've got guys who are, you know, primarily known as shooters or scorers, jo- Jordan Poole, you know, Clay Thompson, although Clay Thompson was a great defensive player before his injuries, mm-hmm. uh, Seth, uh, uh, Steph, you need guys like like Andrew Wiggins to go in there and do some dirty work for you and and still be able to score and, and do the other parts of game, defend highly. But yeah, he, he's going to be a big part of it. You know, as I said, we more so than game four, and I hope the Warriors aren't doing this, I'm looking at game five. Game five to me, Winning on the road is, is going to be huge for the Warriors. Yeah. If they can turn their that way of being on the road around in the playoffs, that's going to speak volumes to just what kind of uh, run they're going to have. And you know what? Yeah, game five is crucial. I expect them to win at home. You know, they're one of the better home teams in the league, Golden State Warriors, that is. So, yeah, look at. I think we can safely look ahead to game five as being pivotal. Uh, for many reasons, because if they do get upset at home, um, then it's going to be an elimination game. Uh, if they if they do hold serve and it's two two going back into Sacramento, then they've got to prove that they can be a team that can play their game on the road in a very hostile environment. Um, 
so yeah, we'll see. We'll we'll see what happens. All right, that's our look. Can at I, hold the, on, uh, Brian. Can I can I leave it at this? Just I yeah. just want to say eleven road wins this season. Eleven road wins. That's all Golden State has had to to has all they could muster out of forty one games. So, you know, if we are going by they are what they are, I mean. You know, and they will be what they'll be. <laughs> yeah, their next road win will be the biggest win of their season. Without question. Without question. All right. Now we're going to wrap up our playoff preview and get to the big news with the Toronto Raptors. And that, of course, is the firing or as what they call it, the relieving of duties of head coach Nick Nurse. And uh, kind of unexpected, kind of expected. I don't know what you want to say about that, Keith. To me, it's um, a little unexpected based on some of the rhetoric that was coming out of the end of season interviews. But the longer you, uh, Masai Ujiri, the president of the Toronto Rappers, took to have his end of season comments, the more it kind of crept in that mm, maybe substantive changes are coming. And that, of course, the most substantive would be the firing of the head coach, which is what ultimately happened uh, earlier this week. But in his comments... Um, Messiah Ujiri made no bones about the fact he did not like what he saw on the court throughout the entirety of this past season. He did not like the way that they lost their fighting spirit. He did not like the culture that had somehow changed for the Raptors in this last season. And you know, when you talk about things like that, those intangibles, you can really lay that at the foot of the coach, I think. And that to me, it was the final arbiter in the decision or Masai Ujiri making the move to go forward without Nick Nurse as his head coach. In listening to the press conference, you know, Masai made it clear that this was, you know, um, something that they were looking at for the last few months. Had nothing to do with, as he said, had nothing to do with what Nick Nurse said and how he answered questions in that last Philadelphia road trip mm -hmm. of the season. But, you know, when your president of your team is saying, not mincing words and saying, hey, look, I didn't enjoy watching this team play this year. That was you know? huge. It, it, it was not us. But here's the interesting thing. When he says it was not us, that leads me to believe there are more changes than just Nick Nurse that are coming down the pipe, right? Because he didn't say, well, you know, it wasn't not, it wasn't not Nick. Um, you know, it also, he also said the way they played bothered Nick as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we got to give Nick Nurse his kudos, man. He had a good run as the Raptors head coach. Obviously, you know, he was a ma massive part of that championship season. But, you know, 41 and 41, um, when you have, uh, you know, an organization, which I'm, I love the fact that Masai Ujiri always says, we're, we're going for championships here. You know, yeah. we're not just we're not trying to play, you know, to get in the play in or to get the sixth seed. Um, we're going for championships. And if, you know, nurse, you know, I think kind of like he his message, Nick Nervous is a good defensive coach. And I think that the fact that the Raptors defense was sorely lacking all season, you don't need any stats to back that up. You could see it with your eyes. You could see it down the stretch of close games. Yeah. They always seem to be the ones that blinked first on defense. Yeah. And yeah. And that's because not, of those and that's things. That's not who they were. 
it's who they no. became this season. But that is not a Raptors yep. team that we've known for the pre- previous three, four seasons leading up to this last season. So yeah, that that was not something that we were used to seeing here under Nick Nurse. So things changed for the for the worse. And what do you think about the rumors of? Because these have been going on longer before than than thinking that he was in trouble. But the rumors of him going to Houston. Um, there's an opening. He's got connections to that franchise from his uh, coaching in the lower levels of basketball um, in the G League, primarily. Uh, young team looking for direction, championship pedigree on the coach. It's a nice fit. It's a good conversation to have. But I, yeah, I tend to take things like that with a grain of salt. Just because people start talking about where a coach should land and is going to land, and there's talk coming out of both markets, Houston and Toronto, about that, doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. So I tend to wait on those things because there are other, so many other factors we are not privy to that uh, influence just exactly where. And there are going to be other jobs that open up. Once this first round of the playoffs is complete, I wouldn't be surprised if eight other teams that lose in the first round don't take a hard look at where they are and what they want to do going ahead. And knowing they're the type of coaches who are out there, uh, a Nick Nurse, a Ime Udoka, an Adrian Griffin, um, there's a bunch of coaches that are going to be looking for jobs and a bunch of jobs that will be looking for coaches. So, yeah, Houston may be a, a situation that is good for Nick Nurse, but I'm in, a, in wait and see mode there because there could be other situations that we haven't heard about that may be just as good for Nick Nurse and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of curious. I, I want to know, you know, very curious to know how hard Nick Nurse fought to, you know, save this job. Did he have, uh, you know, Masai made it seem as if Nick had input. There were multiple meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just like he walked in saying, you know what, I'm firing Nick Nurse. Like there were, so I, I, I don't know, did Nick Nurse, the reason I brought up Houston was, did he fight for this job or what, did he feel it was time to go as well? The, you know, did he lose the, you know, lose the room? Not really a term that you use in, in the NBA, but did he lose the room? And so, uh, you know, I, I, the deed is done already. I mean, so, you know, we got to look at, you know, what is Nick Nurse is now history. What, what did he do for the franchise? You can't take away, uh, you know, the championship. You can't take away the great uh, three-year run they had uh, yeah. with Nick Nurse um, as a head coach. But last couple of seasons, man, I mean, you know, we were getting, you know, as a franchise, they were getting happy to, and the, even the fans, you know, accustomed to the, let's be a 500 team. And I, as I mentioned at the top of when we started talking about this, that's not what Messiah Jury and the and the uh, organization want. They they're in it for championships, and so, you know, five hundred wasn't getting it done. And to his credit, Nick Nurse said the same thing. Nick Nurse said the same thing. He's not here to be a five hundred coach. He wants to. He's here to win championships. Winning is all that matters. And they weren't doing that. And quite frankly, they haven't been in a position to do that based on the way they played this season. Do they need to get back to that? Yeah. How do they get back to that? Well, I think, as you, Jerry, said it, there'll be changes made on all fronts. 
They've got to build their spirit back. And he believes that they're going to win here. So when your president has that belief and he's willing to make changes, deep, substantive changes, then you got to believe in, in the, the, the philosophy. He's not here to mess around. He said it when he came here. I believe we can win championships in this city. They did that. Well, you know what? You want to prove it? Do it again. So let's see them start to do it again. Well, where do you want to go with this? you want to talk about who they possibly can bring in or... You know, do you want to, because, or player changes? Because for my money, Brian, especially in the recent history of the NBA, players matter mm -hmm. more than coaches to me. Your personnel, the guys you can run out there on the floor, yep. matter more than the head coach. Obviously, yep. a, a coach that can reach a team is really important, but I believe that the 30 NBA head coaches by and large, are all competent guys. So, yep. so my thing no is, question. where? how do you change the talent? Because not even so much the talent, but if you're saying that the culture was changing, like, do you need to bring in guys who are, you know, there are a handful of guys in the league that everybody knows. You bring them onto your franchise, whether they're on the court or not, that these guys are going to impact winning. They're going to be positive forces. Do the Raptors have enough positive forces on their roster right now? Like, where do we go? Hell of a question. Hell of a couple of questions there. And I think that's what Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster will be deciding as they head up to the draft uh, once the NBA Finals are done, um, which they said they want to have a coach yeah. in place before then which leads me to believe that they want a coach to be part. If they're, if you, if they're going to make trades, trades are always made in and around the draft, right? So they want a coach in place before then. So to answer the first part of your question, I think they're going to bring in a coach early enough that he can impact the type of changes that Ujiri wants to make to this team and go forward accordingly. Obviously, Scotty Barnes is a big part of that. I think OG Ananobi will be a big part of that. I think everything else is on the table. I think Fred, Gary, Pascal, uh, multiple players on the bench, all of them, everything is on the table. I think that the Raptors are looking to rebuild, not even reload, rebuild around Scotty in a big way. You know, there was something that was floating around on, on social media yesterday. I don't know if you caught it. At the end of the Leaf game, there's a shot of a tunnel outside the Leaf dressing room. And who was in this picture? Larry Tannenbaum, Scotty Barnes in Tampa. Now, we know Scotty's yes. a Florida boy, so it makes sense that he'd be down there. But he's hanging with <laughs> that, the <laughs> that, that tells mean? me a lot, Brian. That tells me that he's not going. That, doesn't that kind of remind you a bit oh, of yeah. the Vince Carter He's not days? going anywhere. Mm -hmm. That's what that tells me. Hell no. Yep. Locked in. Locked in. Yeah. So I, I think that the coach will be will be a big part of what direction the Raptors go in terms of who is brought back, who is brought in, and who stays with this team. But one thing for sure, Scotty Barnes ain't going anywhere. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, he isn't going anywhere. Um, I mean, I guess Fred Van Vliet and Gary Trent Jr. have player options. So they can uh, throw in Otto yeah. Porter. I mean, almost forgot he was on the team <laughs> because I'm sure Otto Porter 
is yeah. going to uh, <laughs> is going to exercise his player option in return to the Raptors. I mean, it'd be silly not to after he, you know, if he hasn't played, right? Um, you know, I mean, for me, yeah. obviously the big one is Fred Van Vliet. Does he want to test the waters? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I I believe in Fred Van Vliet. Uh, yeah, and Masai believes. Remember in the in the press conference, Masai believes in Fred Van Vliet. And as any Raptor fan who can see, Masai said the same thing. It's all about his health. You know, it's all about mm-hmm. his health. If he's healthy, he said he's an All Star level point guard. And I mean, and we see that. Yeah. So. Yeah, no question. You know, Masai to me is is a bit of a conundrum because he is exceedingly loyal and kind of cutthroat at the same time. <laughs> Brutally cutthroat you when know, he needs to be. That's a that's an interesting juxtaposition of uh, character and philosophy, if you ask me. So, yeah, the man has proven that he's loyal to a fault, but he traded Demar Derozan. Oh yeah, after you know, like 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 that. As Demar will tell you, after telling him he was uh, he was okay and fine with the organization. Yeah. But if a better move so is out I, there, right? Mm-hmm. He's gonna do it. He's gonna make it. So yeah, we have to wait and see where this Raptors franchise does go in terms of what moves they make. But I'm gonna take the man at his word. When Masai Ujiri said that there will be changes made, I believe it, and I think they'll be deep and impactful. All right, Keith, this has been probably our longest podcast in our podcast history, brief though it is. Um, That's the playoffs, man. There's so much to talk about, always stuff happening every day. Uh, That's it for episode 22. Always a pleasure doing this with you, Keith. Episode 23 will be coming up shortly because the playoffs don't stop. They just keep on going. Uh, So 23 will be coming up shortly. Don't you dare miss it. If you're listening to this announcement, you've made it to the end of another TIYP Narrowcast. The opinions, views, and statements you've heard on this edition of Puck and Hoop are solely those of the host, guests, and their sources. The purpose of the Puck and Hoop Narrowcast is to entertain and inform our listeners, followers, and subscribers, and to help them form their own opinions. Thanks for listening.